0: John had been shot in the head so uh, we're doing cpr counting i'm holding john's hand you know i'm watching him i'm like you gotta make it you know you just have to make it because if he dies then we could all die because then it became so real and he didn't he didn't make it
1: so team is launching we're bailing out of our car sprinting up there everybody's raining down on this thing and gunfire comes from inside the car, you can see the muzzle flash through the darkly tinted windows. First head up front takes a tech nine out, holds it to the side of Kathy's head and goes, drive. And that's when Larry carries the, the gun away from Kathy's head, drives three rounds through the seat and kills the guy. Um, other suspect in the back was killed, Larry was killed, of course the guy up front was dead. But we, th- we it was one of those things we didn't know how much we didn't know. And so when you're a narcotics, you think you're doing everything right because it turned out okay. And that was one thing, too, after, after the Larry Bromley incident. I hated, the two statements I hated was, everything turned out all right, which means you were lucky. Or the other one is, this is the way we have always done. It. I hated those two statements. I would, I it, I, it was like chalk, fingers on a chalkboard for me.
0: I didn't know what I know now. I, I just knew, how does anybody survive this? That was my why, because you know when you're looking at officers who are supposed to be there to protect and, and they you know, horrifically make an accidental death happen, I really thought, how do you survive this? I don't know how you survive this.
2: You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisting Officer Foundation.
4: and we can learn from those mistakes.
5: And together we can bridge the divide.
2: Hello ATO listeners. I'm Joe King. I'm here with the national treasure, Misty Van Kuren and Josh Ortel. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to young DPD officer Rodney Harrison. He's always given great feedback uh, on our podcast. I just want to give him a shout out. Thank you. Be safe. Today we're having a dynamic duo on both former Dallas PD with long distinguished careers and both, after police retirement, continued their dedication to service. I had the honor of introducing the missus. She worked for Dallas PD for 23 years, undercover Dallas PD narcotics detective for 17 years, 10 years of that on a federal task force. She also worked on the state pharmacy board for six months. She got her master's in counseling while still in narcotics. After two critical incidents in narcotics, this guest became determined to help first responders cope and heal from their functioning PTSD. She was one of the original Sissy Officer Foundation counselors since the program's inception. She's seen both sides of the coin as a true first responder servant. I'm so happy to know and very honored to welcome on Dottie Claggett. Dottie, thanks for coming on.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) All right, I have the other half. Um, Our guests have persisted
4: 35 years of marriage, and I say persisted because that's the ultimate compliment. And um, this is our very first husband and wife duo. And Steve and Dottie have three successful adult children. Steve hired on with Dallas Police Department in 1981 after growing up in Iowa. Uh, He endured 25 years of police work, being three years at Central Patrol, Uh, one quick year in vice, six years in narcotics, and finished up with 15 years in SWAT. During his tenure... Uh, Steve was part of a core cadre that molded SWAT, uh, established an unrivaled training groove, and that still exists today. And he left the division better equipped than when he arrived. Uh, He retired from DPD in 2006, but his passion for training is contagious. I can attest he delivers instruction with focused intention and engagement like I've never seen. And to this day, he is a connected educator, Uh, finding unique and proven tactics to improve law enforcement. Uh, He dedicated the last 14 years to training platforms like Triple Canopy, CSAT, and Fulcrum Tactical. Even though I have not seen him in years, he still conveys a special presence that demands respect. Thank you, Steve Claggett, badge 4623, for joining us on the ATO podcast.
1: Thanks. You're too kind. <laughs>
4: I told you it'd
3: be good. That yeah, was I she's was, the best. Not, no, I Excellent. nothing
4: inappropriate.
2: All right. Are y'all ready to get into this? Sure. Let's do this. All right. The first question is for Dottie. When did you decide to become a police officer and Why Dallas?
0: Well, okay, my story is a little bit different because I was at UT Austin after high school at Duncanville High School. And <clears throat> several of my friends were coming back to Dallas. So I thought, okay, let's go to Dallas and I'll start looking for a job. And, um, I was actually wanting to be a flight attendant. <laughs> so I know you didn't know that. Um, so I, I, had... I can I'm, I'm <laughs> imagining you in, in the, in the, uh, American airlines. Outfit. Yes, actually. in <laughs> the, ma- yeah, the, scar- the scarf. Go, back go. then. see that scarf. Yeah. Go, go boots. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, oh. that was Southwest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I I guess I did an internship at UT with the law school and I went to some training and they wanted uh, to try to recruit FBI agents. And I never thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. So um, even when I got to Dallas, I thought, well, let's check the police department because they wanted three years of work experience or they wanted a law degree or an accounting degree. So I, you know, part I was partly thinking I needed to get three years of PD experience, and then I was going to try to go to the feds. But um, really, I applied to both American Airlines and uh, PD, and I said, whoever calls first is where I'm going. PD calls first. Dallas calls first. And here you All are. All the time. They do. We just
2: <laughs> beg people to come here. Oh.
0: <laughs> so that's where, you know, I, I went ahead, and, and I was in the academy. I was trying to remember <laughs> dates. Um, because I can't remember dates, but I graduated from the police academy in 1981.
4: Now, you guys weren't in the same class, were you? No. No. No.
0: No. So I did a short stint with park police, but I went through the regular police academy. And so as soon as I got over there for a bit, I said, no, I want to go to Dallas. And so I transferred over and we were actually about training about close to the same time. Right. By the time I got over. Yeah. So that's why I ended up here. And
1: that's where the competition started. Oh. Oh, yeah. It was very competitive. Yes. You'll hear more. Okay.
2: I can't wait. <laughs> hey, speaking, speaking of that, Steve, why'd you, why'd you come to Dallas, grow up in Iowa? How'd you get here?
1: I wanted to avoid winters because growing up in Iowa and then going to school in South Dakota, the winters were brutal. So, And I had family down here. My, my aunt and uncle lived down here. So um, I came down during spring break my senior year and, and loved it down here. Um, I can't say that I was drawn to law enforcement. I think it just kind of ended up in my lap uh, because I couldn't find a job doing anything else that I liked. So um, I t- I tested with Dallas, Richardson, and Plano, and I was kind of like Dottie. The first one that called was where it was going to go, and Dallas was the first one that called. So well,
2: was Dallas's gang clearly?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. I played football, right? I did. I did, and that was probably. Part of my problems physically today, just from that. But from you know, collegiate football. Sure, we we beat ourselves up, so it's all good.
0: South Dakota, what was the um, university? Of, I always get it mixed up.
4: University
1: of South Dakota. University yes. of South Dakota. Yeah.
0: yeah.
4: You were defense, right? I was. Were you linebacker or a DB? Strong safety. Okay. Yeah.
1: Right. So kind of a mix between the two. wasn't fast enough to be a DB and not big enough to be a linebacker. Okay.
2: Okay. So, there he was, like a Darren Woodson type.
1: Yes,
0: yes, i will say that. What were uh, what
2: were your impressions of of the academy? Was it harder than you thought it'd be, or, or
0: well, easier? I can, I can answer that because when I was in the academy, um, I really didn't think I was cut out for this job. <clears throat> I mean, I was a I was a drill team lieutenant, you know, dancing most of my life. I was a dancer. I was not even an athlete.
2: We didn't have a lot of dancing in the academy in mind. They may have, <laughs> yeah. had, that. They may have had that in y'all's. I wish so. we had no. it though. I know, yeah. Yeah. Hey, break, ba- break dancing. Ballet, <laughs> ballet
0: would have been great for everybody. But, um, you know, when I was in the academy, I was like, what am I doing here? I can't do this job. So every week I gave myself – you know, I made a deal with myself. I could quit. If I just got through the week, I could quit. If I could get through the month, I, I would quit. Um, and then, you know, each week passed – and, um, I don't know if anybody remembers, but our, uh, PT training officer, he scared me a lot and I was not a runner and he would make me run back when we had Bachman Lake. Yeah. Okay. So he goes, you're good. You know, I was, a, I, I was never last, but I was second to the last or the third to the last and he was going to run with me. And he said, you're going to beat this time. And I was terrified because I was not a runner, but he scared me so bad and he called me all kinds of names that I have never been called in my life. Friendly?
4: Like what?
2: Yeah, you give one it? example.
0: Okay. No. Well, I'll give you two bitch and hoe. Wow. I know.
3: We kidding. hear those all the time. Don't we? H's and, H's. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and he was yelling that as I'm running around the lake going, I'm quitting. I'm quitting as soon as I'm done with this race or this run. Or after this day, I'm quitting. So every day I thought, what am I doing here? You know. But I got through the academy. I even said, okay, when I get through training, I'll quit. When I get through probation, I'll quit. And then three years, I'll quit. And then I was there 23 years.
3: So, so you learned B's and H's. Earlier. Early. Yes, because yeah. I went. So you didn't have to learn it from the street. I've never <laughs> been was, called that. It was that. appropriate back then. You could do that. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> they got away uh, with a lot of it. Did it work? <laughs> it worked because I'm man my time. It was, I was like, wow, I did that. You know, I, was, I was proud of myself. Yeah,
4: I was going to say, were you proud of yourself? I
0: was proud of myself. Yeah. But I was like, man, you're mean. So and then you hit the streets and you saw Mean. Oh yeah. 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 And he probably prepared me for all that. You know, thank you Frank. <laughs> yeah. And, and just
1: just to be clear, they were all about just mind. Everything was just trying to change your mind or get your get your mind right. And not only Frank but a guy his I think his God-given name was Crusher back in the early 80s. Um physical phenomenon, huge guy.
2: did he have a mustache?
1: No, he did not. yeah, oh, no, he did not. He was just shaved head. even back then, just a big old guy and he would just sit there on the on the stationary bike as you were lifting weights and just just look at you, stare at you, it scared you to death You're like, I'm doing something wrong, I'm doing something wrong and he'd just slip That's a little awesome. comment in, do more weight or, you know or more reps and and then, of course, you guys may know Jack Parrott. Mm-hmm. he was probably the last guy he was he was the class supervisor. Oh, wow. What a prick. God, that guy, and love him today, but he was there just to get your mind right and see if you were cut out to be a cop. That was his job. He still did it at the range. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But he would just, I hated him. I hated his guts because he would treat guys and gals in the academy. Just He'd pick the guys out, and he'd just wear them out. And when we graduated, he came up to me because he knew I hated it. And he goes, so what do you think now? And I go, "I, I don't know what you mean. And he goes, why do you think I was being an ass? And I said, because you're an ass? And he goes, no. He goes, would you want that guy to be your partner on the streets? And I said, no, in light of things, because he would get into that breaking point and see what they would do. And it was, it was genius once I thought about it and, and the fact that he was able to go through. But he was a Marine, so, of course, he went through that too. But he was, it was, the whole academy was set up for that. For success or failure, but they wanted it to happen in the academy instead of happening on the streets. So
3: hmm.
1: um, that was genius. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, I, I got to bring up. Uh, no, I guess I won't bring that up. Oh, please don't! No, come on, yeah. we He's want to know still now. he's still around. That's okay. No, that's no. Okay. he probably didn't listen. <laughs> no, my luck. he'd, he'd listen. But now there was some there were some great personalities in the academy. Not only people you went there with, but the problem with my group, my academy, we started out with thirty five and we ended up with seventeen yeah we were destined for mediocrity so but when you your first day in the academy is december 7th pearl harbor day and you graduate on april 1st april fool's day you are definitely destined for lesser things so
2: we fulfilled that wow after both y'all graduated what uh stations did y'all go to Central. We were both, both at us. Central. Both Central, okay. That's how yeah. we met. Okay. So you yeah. you started in 81, and Steve went in? 81. I, oh, was, okay. I was December 81. Okay, and you... I don't
0: even remember the you date. Remember? But I... Um, yeah, I was at Central. I went straight to Central. Okay. Uh, and we had we had one um, training officer that we both had.
1: Who specifically told her not to date me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she clearly
2: didn't listen to no. uh,
0: Well, they... In the academy, they told me, don't take cops. I went, okay. And then don't date one at your station. I went, okay.
2: Yeah, it took me 25 <laughs> years to finally date a cop. So, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's <laughs> very <laughs>
0: challenging.
2: <laughs> what was the culture like in Dallas in the 80s? I mean, I, I, I'm always mentioning J.R. Ewing and Bobby Ewing and the big shitty hair and, and clothes. we yeah,
4: brought these pictures and there's lots of good 80s no, mustaches. No. Yeah, we've yeah. got a
2: lot of good oh, yeah, Oh, yeah. It's quintessential, like.
0: <laughs> the mullet. I know if there's one in there. <laughs> from, from my perspective,
1: when we went through the academy is when Hill Street Blues hit. I don't know if you remember oh. Hill Street that's Blues. That's one of
4: the best iconic cop shows ever. Iconic.
1: So we thought that's what real cop work was. So we were prepping ourselves for that. And, and it was funny because some of the personalities you saw there, you'd actually see in the police department, you go, oh, my God, that's Renko or that's, you know, so-and-so. Um, and it, so that was kind of the neat thing about it. But the best thing about the 80s, it was the death of Disco. Finally, it went away. That was and my favorite. I know. That's yeah. Oh,
4: I love discount. Oh I no, love
1: discount. no, 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 because the clothes, everything just screamed. You know, it was it was beginning of metrosexuality. That, right. that yeah. dress, you know, I'm like, no.
0: We had a lot of chest
2: hair too. hanging
0: out. Yeah. I did not. He didn't have any. He was baby faced. No, it was t-shirts and jeans.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to post these pics when they release nice. this. Don't I, show him. I Steve. didn't sign off on Whatever those. You no unauthorized the right sweater.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he will be mad I'm telling you already
2: well th- this is for both y'all, and y'all could decide who's going to go first. What was your favorite part of patrol? would you gravitate to as far as work
0: i I had the best time <clears throat> in patrol. I was working with Steve Celaya um, and he was my partner for a while. He got me in trouble, but <laughs> It's okay, Steve. Steve. <laughs> Shocker, I know. Yeah, because we chased dope, and you know, we yeah. answer calls, and and it was really a good time. And I got really close to everyone around me. I just loved everybody that I was working with. Uh, we we were off duty together, on duty together. I mean, we spent all our time together, and they became family, um, which is probably another reason I stayed so long. It, it I I had a blast. I I really did. You know, with with a few of the things that we'll eventually talk about, some of the things that happened, um, you know, which is pretty typical in police work. But I was living in a in a fun bubble until, you know, things start happening. And then you you begin to realize, wow, this this is real. You know, it's real stuff. So
4: how long do you think your fun bubble lasted?
0: I, it lasted until uh, that first officer who was actually in my squad was killed. And then my fun bubble was, it, it blew up. I was like, okay, this is real. Uh, we do get hurt and, and killed on this job. So that's probably when it all changed. Yeah.
1: For me, uh... I worked mostly the doping guns thing like like a lot of your guys did, working right there off Grand Avenue for the most of the time and uh, until I got in trouble, and then they moved me up to Oak Lawn for a little bit. Um,
0: he got in trouble. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. that was punishment. But anyway, no, it, it was great. The, the camaraderie was phenomenal. The job, the adrenaline dumps. I mean, you, you basically went to work for that adrenaline dump and couldn't believe it. They paid you money to do it and had to go home on weekends. And, um, you know, it's just – it was – the working with like-minded people and doing good things. Um, the the camaraderie you had, the personalities. The personalities on the street. Uh, I mean, there was, a, there was a guy that was renowned on the street. Willie Cunningham was his name. They called him Alley Oop. And this yeah, guy perfect. was a physical phenom. Um, even up until his mid-50s, you could see him on the street and go, Mr. Cunningham, why don't you knock out 50 for me? And he'd lay down and do fifty one arm push-ups. And then you'd give him a dollar, and he'd go on his way. And he'd go sniff gas and... But that was his thing um, but uh, just just unique personalities and of course all the cops were just as unique in their backgrounds and the things that they would do and where they came from so um, no it was it was some of the best times uh, the funny thing about it though is you thought that was the end-all be-all Working control was the end-all be-all until you went to someplace else and you go man it's, it's it's unique here too and then you went to the next level it was unique there too so um, the progression there's definitely a progression when you get to the police department
2: well you take baby steps as an officer and and y'all did and you learn the streets and then both of y'all moved on to at very advanced units we're gonna get into those but you uh you you talked about one of your uh teammates uh getting killed and looking up this is january 16th 1983 is that correct Okay. Uh, yes. oh, so
0: you were yes. still pretty rookie yeah oh yeah i think i yeah it was only about a year and a half
2: yeah yeah we're, um, we're talking about uh the murder of uh officer john Pasco, yes. um and you were involved in that in that incident and, and and present can you can you tell us what happened there's a lot one thing i like to do with this podcast is i like to keep the memory of the history of dallas alive and especially uh the fallen mm-hmm. and cause there's a lot of people that just see paintings up on walls and they really don't know, uh, the stories behind it. So that's why I try to get people to talk about it. I, I, I hate getting people to talk about some of their worst days, but I think it's important to keep these memories alive and, mm-hmm. and let people know just how shitty and dangerous the job can be. Sure. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, John, He was young like us, you know, we like to stay busy, um, always what we call shaking the bushes, um, you know, trying to find things to be involved in. And I know it was on Sunday, and you know, Sundays are probably the most dangerous days when you start looking at historically when officers get hurt or injured. And um, I was working with Celia, and we, you know, it's just a, a laid back day, and so we were on our way to a 50 we were on east grand and um the thing about john is he was just a quiet guy from iowa another iowan
1: wholesome wholesome is what she's trying to say wholesome. yeah
0: <clears throat> and i think he had prior military experience but air he force. was air force so he was just a, a quiet guy he was kind of a loner he worked alone a lot and um you know we'd cover him and and help him out when he needed it and so Steve and I were about to check out, and I think if my memory's not real good because I, I stayed focused more on the traumatic parts of it. So all the little details around it, it's hard to remember. But um, I believe he called for cover because he was on in a foot chase with someone. And, um, of course, Steve and I, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we need to get over there. And it wasn't, I don't know how much longer it was, and then we hear officer down and, you know, Anytime you hear that, those words, you just, I don't know how to even explain it. It's like your, your whole body just shuts down and um, I'm, I'm real empathic. So it's probably why I do what I do now, but I take up energy around other people. And I remember seeing Salaya and he was driving and he just, this loud yell comes out and you can it's like he was beating the steering wheel and then he you know of course we hauled ass over there um and the whole time i i just feel like my whole body shut down because whenever you hear that you're so worried you're like please be okay so we get there and in a field you know and this is my memory um and there's you see an officer laying down and, you, and there's another officer there um i think it was he was attack officer at the curtis time, fortner, curtis fortner and he's, he was already doing CPR. And we're running up there, and you know, um, kind of helping him with CPR. It, it's like tunnel vision. I do remember things like blood. You know, I saw blood on, um, I, I'm assuming it was Steve's cheek. You, know, you, you really tend to hyper-focus in on things like that. And um, John had been shot in the head. So uh, we're doing CPR, uh, counting, I'm holding John's hand Um, because they were trying we're all trying to help him and um, you know and when you're waiting on uh, paramedics it it just seems like it's forever forever those probably were seconds but it's like oh my gosh they got to hurry up you know Um, and we never really knew where he was shot Uh, we heard later where he was shot but you, you just don't think about that. Or I didn't. I was just focused on making sure, you know, he's got to be okay. Um, So only the next thing I remember is being at the hospital, because there's lots of blanks in there when it's a traumatic event. And he was on life support. So, you know, I'm watching him. I'm like, you got to make it, you know, you just have to make it. Because if he dies, then we could all die, you know, because then it became so real. And he didn't he didn't make it so
4: he was only in his 20s right yeah
0: he was yeah. young he wasn't married had no kids yet yeah. i think he had a dog and um, um and then the things that happened afterwards i think I, I i barely remember but then my sergeant came to me and said you're going to be a pallbearer you're going to fold the flag um and you know back then and this was my first officer death and so Part of me was, you know, detached. But the other part of me was like, you want me to fold the flag? Like, what? You know, because I've never done that. I hadn't even been to a funeral. And he goes, yeah, you're going to do that. And then, you know, I I love the um, custom of staying with the body. And so I had to, of course, we all took turns. Steve and I, um, this is something we shared. But honestly, we never talked about it, which is kind of weird. <clears throat> so, uh, and, you know... Uh, Somebody took pictures and I I didn't even remember there were pictures that, and we had to fly him to Ames, Iowa. It was really cold and I was a nervous wreck. I I mean, you know, I had to practice the day before how to fold the flag because I had never done that, right? And so I do remember how detached I was the whole time. I barely remember the funeral at all. I just had to do the things. I do remember one time when, you know, the viewing that happens before you take them home Um, I had to stand next to him with the open casket and I'm standing there and I remember one of my uh, friends from Central came up got real close to my face and said just let it go let it out and I I don't know what was on my face I was just trying to be as small as I could on the inside and um, you know those things stay with you forever 30 years later, I did an EMDR session when I was learning how to do EMDR, and that comes up. I was shocked. It was still imprinted, and that's why these things can imprint you so deeply, you know, so.
4: Did, did it come up on its own?
0: Uh, yeah. Um, um, I was with a bunch of therapists. I know I'm fast-forwarding, but <clears throat> I was with a bunch of therapists, and the girl that was going to work on me, nobody in there knew I had been a cop, so I, I thought I better warn her, you know, I want— and really, I was warning myself because I didn't know what what was going to come up. Sure enough, that that shooting came up, and it was the moment. That's why I could see the blood on on. I think it was Steve's cheek. It was either Steve or Curtis's cheek, and all of that just right there is what came up in my EMDR session. So,
3: from <clears throat> from a mental health standpoint, were there any programs the department had then? I mean, I was.
0: I mean, we had psych services, but back then, you know, the culture was you don't go. <laughs> you don't go, you know. And it's hard enough being a female in the 80s trying to do, you know, police work. And I I already knew I was pretty sensitive and shy and quiet. And I wanted to prove myself that I could do this. Once I got on the street, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my best, and I, then I can quit. <laughs> so um, I really didn't want to do that back then because I didn't want to look weak. I really wanted to, you know, show everybody around me that I could do this job. So, but to answer your question, I I didn't go, I don't know if anyone really went. I don't think the culture was there to go. How long
2: after this incident did you mentally replay this?
0: Well, um, so, you know, when I talk about this in therapy, but a lot of times when these things happen, you detach. It's you have to detach. Otherwise you can't do the job if you're not detached. If you feel everything on every call, you know, it you can't do the job. And so I got really good at detaching. I, I mean, I became an expert at detaching. So what was your question? Did you I lost <laughs> it? Well, sorry, I, just, I was like, I think you answered right it. There. Yeah,
3: it was just a mental health standpoint. What did they offer then? But I mean, you you just brought up another good point, too, was you detach yourself from that. I mean, was that reoccurrent throughout your career for any other incident? and just became very common?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think uh, by the time I left, um, even though, you know, that was 23 years worth of stuff, and we didn't even talk about some of That's my first. uh, There's a lot more that uh, happened, and it's just weird, you know, because when I describe it to officers now when they come see me and they're like, Yeah, it's almost like you're in their head, describing this um, detachment. Um,
3: Well, from a professional standpoint, now with your career mm -hmm. here as as a counselor, what what is that? Is that a coping strategy? Is that a mechanism that the body uses for survival? How would you describe that? Definitely,
0: it's a coping mechanism, Um, and I think every officer over time, um, and I say every, you know, there's always an exception, but um, you don't even realize it's happening. It's so gradual that you can't feel every call. And then one of the calls might penetrate. And that's usually when officers, you know, can feel that. And it feels like it's the, the catalyst that makes everything else come up. Um, but the detachment is a coping mechanism, and I think it's kind of one of those necessary evils, you know, where you need to do that, be that, so you can do the job. But it's not good when you're trying to connect with family and kids and you know neighbors and friends. It, it can be hard.
2: After this incident, uh, how long did it take you to get up to narcotics? And, and Steve, were you already in nar- Narcs then? Narc- no, and she no. got the Narcs before was there you first, did. It? Yeah. Okay. How long? Did, well, after? I,
0: um I'm not sure, like again, time-wise, because I was brought up to narcotics on a special, mm-hmm. one of the funnest jobs ever, because I got to spend two weeks, or two months, I'm sorry, uh, working La Was
2: Steve there, <laughs> dancing? I was in the park no,
0: I was in the <laughs> parking lot. He oh, was on the stage, cars. no, oh, okay. extra job uh-huh. on the sure, stage. Stop it, no, stop it. <laughs> How'd this become a tax Steve, how does this happen? Oh, you just wait. <laughs> we'll always pull you in this. But yeah, it was like the best job ever and I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is so fun." And um so I did two months, went back to central and then I I decided I need to get up the narcotics and then I got up there cuz I spent 17 most of my career <laughs> up in narcotics. So That's
4: a lot of time.
2: It's yep. It is a long time. Yep. Steve, so when, when did you decide to get up there?
1: Um I went to vice first oh, after wanted, three years. I, that was the short stint. I yes. want to hear all
2: about this short stint.
1: I don't know if I want to tell it now,
2: Joe. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, and it's, it, Vice was a stepping stone to get to narcotics. Narcotics was kind of the prime area you wanted to get to. That's where all the big deals were and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So um, that was basically a gateway to get to, to narcotics. And so I said, okay, there was an opening. I went there, and, and uh, boy, did I make a mistake. Coming, oh, coming from, from Iowa, I mean, innocent oh, and get thrown into the seedy underbelly of the city. Ugh. Uh, you just and, and, you know, the bad thing about it is you're expected to do unnatural stuff, like just taking off your clothes in front of people. Yeah. yeah people that you don't know and people that are not attractive. Ugh. And you're supposed to take off your clothes just to prove that you're not a cop. And I didn't
0: think case. I knew you took your clothes off. Oh, my God. Are you married to me? Huh? I thought you couldn't do that.
1: No, I'm talking about (laughs) independent, depending upon where you go. If you're, if you're, no, if you're a street, if you're working a street girl, then no, you can't. But when you go to massage parlors and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah.
2: What?
1: So I worked at one, at one point in time, I worked with a guy, John Nichols. Um, He retired not too long ago. Good guy. Um, He was like a Tom Selleck lookalike. So, so yeah. Nice yeah. mustache. Yeah. Right oh there. yeah. Yeah. So um, he and I both we had a lieutenant E W Smith that liked messing with us. So of course he gets a complaint on a gay escort agency that is that is um, looking for new talent to work. Answer fresh goes, fish. Yes. <laughs> Definitely
4: <laughs> fresh meat.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I made a mistake. But anyway, so so he sends John and I, and you have to go and interview. For this job what we were looking for is is an aggravated promotion to prostitution case so they got have to have two cases of this to make it aggravated so we flipped a coin I lost I get to go first and it it the process was just I mean it takes everything not to throw up on yourself because it's so it, just the everything about it, the smell the look the just everything um, I got hired thank God Um because would have not helped my self esteem had I not? John went next; he got hired. So we're like, okay, we got a great case in this guy. I'm not even going to give you the details. It's
2: like of... Dallas PD recruiting, just <laughs> yeah. In. Yes. yeah. God knew just... you guys were cops the yeah. whole time. Yeah. He didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got, I got him. Well, And that was that was how
1: basically how you proved that you weren't a cop is by going through all the instructions. You know, what it's it's like an interview. You sit down, you're going through an interview, what your likes, dislikes, what you are willing to do to make money, because you can make a lot more money doing some things than other things. And then it basically culminates in, okay, take your clothes off. And then they they want more than that. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) you learn how to BS your way out of things. So that was good. Um, So then EW, he liked this. He goes, okay, you guys did a good job. We're going to go hit the home office in Houston now. So we had to hook up with the Houston Vice, and we go down there. And, of course, I go first, and I go first, and – the go to the interview in a high rise in Houston, like a nine story complex down there, and we're on the ninth floor um, of it, like a condo type thing, townhomes. And I go in there and go through this interview process again. Well, do the whole you know, likes, dislikes, turn offs, turn ons, that whole thing. This is how you can make more money. And then when it comes to, the, okay, show us what you got, in walks four more guys.
3: Oh God! And I'm I've never like,
1: heard a vice story like this. Oh. and of course I'm sitting here going, "Okay, so my choice is." So I'm standing here naked. My clothes are there. I got no gun, no no knife, no badge. Also, got it's a lamp right next to me. So I, I can said either, this nightstick. That's all I got. No, no, no. What? Believe me, you can't you can't get a nightstick in for in this environment. Believe me.
3: I don't think that's a stick. He was talking. About was. No, no,
0: Randy joined us. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say Steve, I didn't have to worry about Steve behaving. But <laughs> why are you
2: taking off the ring, Dottie? Was, was, <laughs> no. go ahead. I'm sorry. Steve, go ahead. No.
1: But it was it was definitely the worst experience of my life, and it's it's one of those things you just learn how to talk real fast and 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 bullshit your way out of it because uh, other than that, it would have, I I would have thrown myself from a nine story window. I, I seriously.
3: Oh. So, I'm sure yeah.
1: you were. But. And then the Show worst us part, what you get even that's exactly how they put it too. The worst part is when we went and actually ran the warrant on it. The same five guys are in there, and all of them are in the midst of I, I can't even describe it. Words can't not describe what we caught them doing. But you just you, you know, it's, you're just doing everything to keep your lunch down.
2: I bet words can describe it. But no, we probably should yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll no. leave it at that. Thank oh you. Appreciate. I you. don't even want we'll to. hear it. We'll pause for. I don't want to hear it. Pause for a session. <laughs> One secure <put your laughs> Yeah. Hmm. We might need to take a smoke break. Uh,
0: yeah, so, so, so after so uh, yeah, after vice, yeah, after
2: after that vice stint and successful operation, uh-huh. very successful Stop operation. um uh, you get up the narcotics. Yeah,
4: were you all up there together?
0: There are times where, yeah, because you were six years, I was seventeen. So, yeah, he spent. We have spent. You,
4: when y'all, when he went, had y'all. Were y'all dating or had y'all
0: met? I think we were married. Married. Oh, you were <laughs> yeah. already married? We were, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. we married in 86, but we were in different squads. Okay. They made us happy. Huh? Far away from each other. Yes, yeah, so we had to be because we were very competitive.
2: But yeah. you didn't know about that vice thing before y'all got married. She but, knew. Uh, oh, I knew.
0: <laughs> I didn't know to this detail, Joe's but I know. Yeah, he, I Joe's really <laughs> interested in that. <laughs> I'm
2: actually over here Googling. What, <laughs> well, I tell you what. Look at He didn't another, talk another, about another it much. Ted Pole.
1: Anybody so know Ted Pole, the name? State? Is that your nickname, Pol, Ted Poe? Poe, oh, not Poe. Oh, I, I heard it. He was, he was a congressman here in Texas. He was also the judge on the case when it went to trial. Um, he was the guy that used to remand people from the state. He would say, okay, you're, you're caught stealing from Walmart. You're going to stand out in front of Walmart with a sign saying, I stole from Walmart. He was very creative in his penalties. He ran for state a congress and won. But he it, it hit a slow news week that week. And so this was like front page news. Me, John and Ted Poe, that was pictured on, on basically the front of the newspaper. And it's like gay escort agency gets busted. So this knucklehead from my hometown, Atlantic, Iowa, from my hometown is living in Houston. He sees this, doesn't read the article, and thinks I've been arrested for gay prostitution. So calls his mom, who calls my mom. My mom calls me crying, thinking I've been
2: arrested. I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah, it's a, it's a non ending story. I want to find that news arc. Anyway, <laughs> Steve, both of y'all had so many critical incidents that probably still haunt you. Can you take us back to 1986? You're robbed in the very elegant Globe Romantic Motel in South Central. Could you describe that incident? Yeah.
1: Um, just so you understand, basically, working narcotics is broken down into either running warrants or doing buy busts. Buy is where you show up with either money or dope, depending upon if you're if you're buying or selling dope, um, and you go through undercover negotiations and all this good stuff. And there's a bus team basically waiting out there um, to to knock them down when the deal's over with. So um, my basically my genre that I worked in was either everybody had mullets on my squad, so that it was that time of the uh, in history and. I was playing rich boy with a, driving a, a, a 928S Porsche and, you know, simple white boy out there buying dope. Um, so I end up at the, uh, at the CI introduces me to this broker who is going to have his suppliers bring me drugs, a couple kilos. So we end up down there. Um, my sergeant and my squad are out in the parking lot. And they've got two TAC guys there that are helping out too. Um, it just, it is a, a, just, just a list of failures, this whole operation, because everything that went wrong, Murphy was alive and well. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. My body mic went out in the middle of this thing. And so um, Alan Adam checked my partner, basically got the room next door and was listening through the wall. That's how thin the walls were, is he could hear the conversation there. And then he's radioing back to the guys out in the parking lot. So we're going through negotiations, and finally the brokers show up, two guys. So there's three of them and one of me. And another failure on my part was everybody liked to carry a gun that you could hide real easily because you didn't want to be found with a gun. So, of course, Walther PPK, which was really cool because James Bond carried it. So, you know, it really worked. Um, Tucked down the back of my pants. And next thing I know, they bring the dope, throw it on the bed, and I'm standing in the middle of the room looking at the dope, and I'm surrounded by these three guys now. Everybody's got a gun in their hand but me. And I'm like, okay, gave the rip signal, just take the dope or take the money, take the money, it's in the car, it's in the car, this kind of stuff. And that's the signal to, okay, the team can come in. Um, I hear nothing. And I'm like, this is not good. And finally I hear the door getting kicked in, but it's the one next door. <laughs> Husband and wife in there, a man and woman in there, in the middle of whatever they're doing and uh, screaming. So Alan leaves his room, actually kicks the right door. But the, when the first distraction happens – of the door next door getting kicked in, the guy that's got me on my knees and a gun screwed in my ear, he turns to see what it is. So it gives me an opportunity. Other guy starts walking to the door to see what it is. At about the same time, Alan kicks the door open, hits him in the head right across the face and and knocks him clean. And the other guy and I, are, are uh, we're taking care of business over there, and then the third guy decides to get rid of his gun. Um, so just lucky. That's all it was. It was yeah. just luck on my part. I put myself in the position Standing in the middle of the room versus in a, on a wall or in the corner, keeping my battlefield in front of me. Had my gun positioned in the wrong spot, um, and communications went out. So I just, uh, you know, the only the only smart thing I did was leave the money in the car versus bringing it in the room. Uh, other than that, it was just a just a host of failures that I was just lucky to make it out of.
3: Just because I know your former background beyond narcotics, did that uh, did that spark something in, in you? I mean, is what is that something that maybe had you start thinking, you know, tactics and
1: I was I was trying to think mindset. more personal tactics and personal, you know, safety and security type stuff and putting trying to put myself in a better position but not thinking big picture yet. And that was that was kind of a that was a failure of the division. I mean, we basically when you take guys uh, and give them MP5K models and pistols and shotguns and say go hit that warrant right there, it'll all be all right, didn't do any training. And you just, by the grace of God, you made it without doing anything and to yourself or anybody else. So,
3: Do you think that was the foundation maybe?
1: For me, it kind of planted a seed. Yeah. It did plant a seed in me to where I go, I got to be smarter. I, I just have to be smarter. Because, you know, you do see your life flashing in front of your eyes. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know till later on what that was all about. I didn't realize that when you see your life flashing before your eyes, it's basically your brain trying to come up with a reason or a way to get out of this problem. So it goes back through the memories of your life, trying to look for a solution. And I, I looked into this, and I couldn't find a solution. But my solution was, I was just lucky. And, and then I got an opportunity I was able to take advantage of, uh, and and like I said, Alan Adamczyk saved my life, no doubt, no doubt.
4: So Everyone in this room has risked something for drugs.
1: Oh, absolutely,
4: and stupid. S- I mean, I've never been in that position, mm-hmm. but looking back, and I like to hear older officers' theories on is it worth it?
1: when you're when you're in narcotics, it's all about the dope. It, it is all about the they they used to call in a newspaper article they posted, and I can't remember which deal it was after, but they called it lust for the bust or zeal for the deal. that was the, that was the headlines. and that was the job. And so yeah. safety kind of went out the window mm-hmm. because you were looking like guys would run. From the front door straight to the bathroom, because that's where they were going to try and flush it and and just sprint straight there, bypass all these other idiots sitting on couches or sitting, you know, standing there with guns in their hands, bypass all of them. And again, you relied on luck. Uh, luck and hope just replaced skills and, and common sense.
3: It's funny, you know, it stayed that way, but you remember Ron McCarthy, yeah. the godfather of SWAT, yep. you know, that's yep. one of the things that uh, he would focus on. I, I remember we'd get hell bent over. Uh, marijuana warrants but Mm -hmm. that was one thing that he would preach you know why are we risking all of this for the marijuana right so it's funny how we not funny but it's just interesting how it it's stayed with us for so long but it's just human nature you know especially when you're a police officer and that's that's what you're there to do
1: well and even you see that even on the street you see guys do and i was that way too you would do silly things Trying to, I mean, you sit in bushes waiting for people to come out of the drug house we so you can that. snag them up. Oh yeah, and just think about how stupid that is in retrospect. But yeah. it's it's the the lure of the job. I mean, it, when you can do, and, and the good thing about it is, is we can sit around and tell war stories like that now. You know, and it's people who hang their mouths open listening to it, and that's why there's more TV shows and movies about cops than there is firemen. So I'm going to leave it at that.
5: Okay. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh. we,
2: and I said, we, "Did y'all did y'all sit down and talk about this incident after this happened?" We you did. You we did kind of,
0: kind of. He didn't tell me all the details, but you know, I was doing a lot of my own things. It's crazy up in narcotics. He's doing a bunch of stuff. I'm doing a bunch of stuff, and then at home, we're both going, "Oh, look, you know, look at all the stuff," because we talk about our stuff but it was more in how cops tell cops it's like I war did. story it's minimized it was almost minimized, minimized and impassive. definitely yeah. and i didn't you know it wasn't until years later that he i didn't realize how close he came to getting killed that day um but you know it, it's the it's the life we lived back then steve and i were both very doing dangerous things all the time and in a way, we kind of got competitive with each other on who could be, well, we were who could do the bigger deal, you know, who could, and, and so when I hear that, I'm now, you know, I feel like, wow, that, that's crazy, especially now I'm a therapist now. And I look back and I think there is so much stuff. And, you know, when we were talking about all our stuff, I thought, oh my gosh, look at all the stuff we went through.
2: And survived.
0: And survived it. And even our marriage survived it. That's a miracle in yeah, itself.
5: Did, it's
2: <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. How did y'all navigate the police relationship, and, and and how did y'all decompress from these these incidents? We're going to get into some more incidents that are heartbreaking. But before I get into those, how did y'all decompress at this point? You want to take that?
0: Well, I, I I think you can tell your part, but I you know I I Thank think you. I know. <laughs> I wanted to say <laughs> this is what I deal with. <laughs> <laughs> um. But, you know, um, to be honest, I said, we're going to be transparent, okay? And we're going to really talk about how we didn't deal with things, you know, very well. Um, and how we we really didn't talk about stuff. We we just didn't. But, you know, as, as the story goes on of our relationship and our lives, yeah, we, we didn't do very well. I don't think we did. Um, I don't know. And we... I think the only thing that kept us married was this strong commitment to family um you know we, when we started having kids that yeah we divorce was really not on the i know i threatened it a lot <laughs> over the years but it it was not really on the table we we're just gonna make make it work figure it out
1: and a lot of it too was we, we were a byproduct of our subculture we really were you don't talk about the show weakness you don't show weakness in, in things that you do or how you feel and stuff like that whereas that would have been the perfect place to share it is with your wife. Now, to be honest with you, I, I don't know how married cops that are married to civilians talk about it to their to their spouses. I, I have no idea because at least that was the one thing we could understand what each of, of us was going through. Um, and, and Dottie would always start out. And this is, I think, where she really started her, her therapy career. She'd always just say, do you know what your problem is? And I'd go, no. And she'd tell me what my problem was. And so that was basically, <laughs> that's a joke.
0: It's a joke because yeah. he would fight me on it all. Oh, he said yeah. I got my graduate degree on him. Yes. I'm sure <laughs> so.
2: he's very receptive.
0: He's oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah that's yeah.
4: a great question, though. Do you what? know what your problem is?
1: Yeah. And to be honest with you, most of the time I did not. And and that was, the, that was the nice thing about when we finally did hit a point where we could talk about things and kind of work things out. If nothing else, just to get something off your chest – where and she was phenomenal at this. She could sift through the BS and then kind of bring it back home. And it's like simple things, like I would get so frustrated, after, especially after going to SWAT, where I was like, I need to change minds, hearts and minds. I got, I need to change them here because we're we're lacking. I've seen what happens when things don't go well, and we need to raise the level. And she would look at me and go, You can't change people's hearts and minds. It's they're they're who they are, and you can't change it. I go, I I can, I know I can, and I beat my head against the wall. And, and, uh, but it, it gave me mental health because I was like, okay, it's about time I accept that. And just the ones that want to change will change the ones that don't won't. So
4: you did change habits. Um, you changed work habits
1: in, in what way?
4: Um, in a example, the, the cadre I talked about molded guys under you to train and to make themselves better. And those were habitual
1: Okay. Well,
3: that, yeah, no, I think it I, it it went on beyond you, right? It it good. became part of the culture there. And it's that supposed was the norm. To.
1: Right? I, 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 it makes me feel good. Yeah. And did you notice the way I started asking you questions, mm-hmm. thinking I'm in charge, but I'm not? You, no, you, you know, can't be. You know I know what your that. Problem, that. problem
4: is. <laughs> yeah. What you got? What's your problem? No. And, and, and I guess that was
1: my biggest hope. But I, I tell you, where I learned learned it from was a ton of it from Dottie. To where I was like, okay, I, I got to be smarter about how I do this, but the other teams, other teams like LA, Houston, uh, New York, some of these agencies that I knew guys that were there and saw how they ran their business, how they were professional, how they, how, you know, they, they didn't hammer on each other. They support each other stuff like that. But there was a culture of of excellence in some of these departments. And, and I think I, I know that I yearn for that for Dallas. So, but thanks for the compliment.
4: Yeah. You were, you were the example. Thanks. And, and your um, energy was contagious.
1: Yeah. Could you tell Dottie that? Because she thought I was. I didn't sit around comb my hair and work out.
0: Yes, well, they did I, have hair products. Because right.
4: coming new to why, especially as a female, you're like, yeah. here are this core group of guys that are just gods, and you don't know how they're going to treat you when they're teaching you. Because I don't. I didn't know shit. And I remember specifically some of my very first training sessions. And I just gravitated towards your energy. And then you were so receptive with me no. and patient and didn't treat me any different than any other guys. No. And it, it, it was um,
1: meaningful. But you know what? Here's here's the thing. And this is all any anybody asks of anybody else around that's working is, A, you're talented or are talented, physically talented, great athlete, great shooter, thought well on your feet. Now, you can't go wrong with that. But the other thing, the other component that's generally missing is that drive, that desire to be better mm-hmm. and never being satisfied. I'm, I'm at this level here. I'm pretty good. I'm good right now. And, and that just drove me nuts because there's always a level above that. And sure. you exemplify that. I, I'll tell you a story about you that people don't know. And it's not a big oh, no. story, but
0: okay. <laughs> she
1: comes up to me and she goes, one time she goes, how long do I have to be here before I can start pushing back on people? I don't I go, remember asking that. Oh, yeah. And and I suppose you talked, asked Steve, and he just went, What do you mean?
0: But, <laughs>
1: and so, and, and, and I go, Well, what do you mean? She goes, There's just one guy over here that's just driving me crazy, riding me all the time. I'm not going to say who it was, but how long do I have to be here? I said, You've been here. I think you were there six months, six or eight months, something like that. And I said, As far as I'm concerned, you're cleared hot. (laughs) And next thing I know, you're coming back saying, "Yeah, I did. It worked." I said, "What'd you do?" I threatened to knock him out. I'm like, "Good for you." I don't remember doing that. Oh, Misty, that that. was my that was my favorite story. That was my favorite story. So you earned that right. You earned the right, and you you definitely uh, stood up for yourself, which was phenomenal,
4: phenomenal. But when she said you can't change hearts, I agree with that. You can't change someone's core. But if they do want to improve, you provided it, and yeah. you you gave a an example on how to do it.
1: Yeah, the, I think my my biggest eye opener was basically in a in police departments in general. The only thing that really drives change is tragedy, tragedy or liability. That's going to drive change. You look at you look at all the incidents that have happened around the country, and it's it takes like a Columbine, uh, uh, you know, or a great. Current one was Parkland, you know, where guys sat outside waiting for other guys to get there so they could go in, and that was kind of the the impetus of single man CQB, where you're going to go clear that building by yourself, and that was that was never done. I mean, even on a burglary search, you never went and cleared by yourself. You always had a partner with you at least. It's like a common law. Yeah, and it's and it just it changed it changed the dynamics of the way we're supposed to think now in law enforcement. So. Good but
4: stuff. both of you guys experienced tragedy together on an incident. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yeah, Not directly involved, but yeah. in, our own, in our own way. You're
0: in, in yeah. your environment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In narcotics. Um, the Larry Bromley shooting.
2: Lieutenant Bob Owens talked on this because he wasn't there. He was the commander over narcotics at the time. It was an incident on December 11th, 1991. Steve, could you... Describe describe that whole operation and what went wrong and and I know it I know it's tough it's a shitty deal but yeah you were actually there
1: and and I tell you before I can get into the story I I got to introduce Larry
2: Bromley to you guys please
1: phenomenal guy super smart and I don't say this because he's passed he was just he was a Tennessee hillbilly that was just super smart um, the unique thing about Larry he he could not have kids his his wife Cindy had had lupus so they couldn't have kids so he basically kind of adopted our oldest boy and um he was larry was a if if zz top could have kids they would have been larry because he had long beard long hair
0: he had red hair yeah
1: red and he was he was just he was a sharp guy great common sense but he uh he and i would we did the majority of the undercover work in our squad and we were always trying to figure out you know Better way. So after I'd gotten, gotten jacked in that hotel room, we kind of chatted about that a little bit as far as putting yourself in a better position and things like that. So um, he had knocked down some really good deals. Yeah, that's a that's a picture of him and our oldest boy Matt. Um, he bought him his first football for his birthday. So um, and that kind of led to his football career. So, but great guy, great guy. Um, Cindy was a good lady. Um, like I said, she had lupus, so they couldn't have kids. But she was they. It, it was it was neat to see them together because that, that was truly a giving relationship to where he he helped her with her stuff and she helped him with his so which you know it was it was good to see but uh, anyway so Larry was he had bought dope from these two knuckleheads and he and Kathy Hall it was Kathy Hall at the time it's Kathy Delapaz now and they were going to do a culmination deal for a couple of keys and we were in a uh, Bennegan's parking lot on Camp Wisdom down at Oak Cliff. And it was dark December, a little bit chilly. Um, and we needed, we needed, uh, we knew that there was going to be a supplier was going to bring dope, hand it off to uh, the, the broker who was going to hand it off to, to Larry. And like I said, they'd done a, made a previous buy, um, went good. So there's the expectation was it was going to go well in this time too. So we had, we had to enlist another squad. Um, they had a van. So, we were gonna make them, they were gonna be the takedown on the car, we were gonna be the takedown on the, on the uh, suppliers. Um, it, we were staged in different vehicles so we could set up you know, surveillance and stuff like that. Um, anyway, they came over to the car, Larry flashed the money, it was all good, and then they went to back to their vehicle and get the dope. Now the, the takedown van is basically three car slots away. So basically they, they dump out and they're on top, it had curtains in it, it was perfect. Setup was good. Um, I don't want to get to the point of, of pointing fingers and responsibility. It was tragic how it ended. Uh, it was a culmination of things. It was the the perfect storm for tragedy. That's that's all I'm going to boil it down to. Um, Larry had a vehicle, Firebird, that had darkly tinted windows. Larry had put himself in the in the number three position in the car, kind of unbeknownst to everybody, because he was just he was kind of slick how he did his business. But he cut cut the guy off that wanted to get in the back seat, put one in the back seat. Cut the second guy so he couldn't get in the back seat, and made him sit in the front seat and Kathy's driving. So we're listening to everything on the body mic and they're kind of going along with negotiations. And all of a sudden Larry goes, take the money, take the money. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. And we're hearing all this on the, on the body mic. Um, so team is launching. We're bailing out of our car, sprinting up there. We're kind of a ways off cause we we're sitting back so we could knock down the, the broker on the deal. Um, everybody's raining down on this thing. And, um, Gunfire comes from inside the car. You can see the muzzle flash through the darkly tinted windows. And what has happened at this point is, first shithead up front takes a Tech 9 out, holds it to the side of Kathy's head, and goes drive. And that's when Larry's like, take the gun, take the or take the money, take the money. Don't shoot, don't shoot. And meanwhile, he's pulling his gun out head down the front of his waistband. He learned from my mistake on that having it my back waistband, so it ended up in the crack of my ass versus in my hand. Um, so meanwhile, he's taken out his, his gun, parries the, the gun away from Kathy's head, drives three rounds through the seat and kills the guy and then holds up on the second guy. He's got guns on him. Um, when the team started firing on the car, um, one guy, Joe Rixmeyer was, had the presence of mind to extract Kathy from the driver's seat, which was good because there was rounds that went through her car, her seat. Um, other suspect in the back was killed. Larry was killed. Of course, the guy up front was dead. When uh, when we pulled Larry out of the car, got shithead out of the car, pulled Larry out of the car, started exposing wounds, trying to see if there's something we could plug up. It was there was too many rounds. One of the one of the weapons fired was a shotgun, um, and then the other ones were handguns. So it uh, uh, it's kind of like Dottie was saying. It's so surreal. You just you, you want to you want to stay focused on on what the mission is but you kind of start having that out of body experience where you're trying to take look at everything from above and going okay what's going on here cuz this is not right this is not usual um, and then of course you snap back into it again but again you you're just looking for a solution to this problem and we couldn't find one it was too late so um they obviously ambulance came after we're doing CPR on him, ambulance came and, you know, he was, he was past gone. Um, took him off. Cindy was a dispatcher. His wife was a dispatcher. She was working that night. So she, yeah, she had heard, heard it. Um, she went to the hospital and we were, of course we went and started doing our caper stuff. Um, later that night, um, we got a text from her wanting to talk to us. And so, myself and one other guy went to went to her house it was late real late and and I remember standing there and looking at the the numbers on the door so it's funny how your mind works in stressful situations like this and I remember just kind of staring at the door and had the numbers on the side of the door and and I remember one of the numbers was a nine I'm just looking at that nine. It had the two little nails in it, holding it in place. And I go, if you take that top one off, it'll roll over and become a six. That was going through my brain. I'm like, and I, and I snapped to it and go, what was that? What was that? Where did I go there? And I think truly that, and I learned this from Dottie, kind of a self-preservation mechanism. Self, you know, to where you, you want to, you know, you're trying to make things more comfortable. And Cindy came to the door, and, I mean, she, she was truly frail. She had always been frail as long as i had known her because she was battling lupus and all this good stuff so um and no sooner do we get in the in the door in the room and she turns and looks at me and she goes how could this happen and my answer was i don't know and she cried we cried um and it, it was it was just one of those those moments where it was a life-changing for me um in what way it was i i decided then i could not it was unacceptable i don't know it was unacceptable and that was my that was my why why i became who i became because i didn't want to be in that position again so um after after larry's funeral up in tennessee which there's hilarious side stories to it which I can't tell now but uh I'll just I'll suffice it to say that it was it was Sunday that we got there the locals showed up at this terrible terrible hotel we were in or motel um the blue laws were big in Tennessee so we didn't couldn't buy beer and locals showed up and they were like you guys need anything to drink we're like yeah everything's closed they go we'll be right back came back with beer and booze still had the evidence tags on him.
4: any moonshine
1: no, no shockingly <laughs> enough no but anyway it it was but and then it just got it got it, it was kind of a release for us you know and, and um it it's it is amazingly painful uh because we we did like they did with john pasco we sat on him throughout the night and and all that stuff and And it it is amazingly painful to sit there and look at a guy that was your friend, coworker, and just see how how truly fragile it can be in in law enforcement. So, um,
4: did that change y'all's relationship?
1: No, not really.
0: I think it brought us closer. But to be honest, um, and and this is you know Steve kind of showed that. I think we're both a little surprised. He still can react, you know, all these years later. But one thing I noticed, he did not, he was not okay after this. I would say, you know, I have a list of uh, PTSD, and he definitely had all the signs of it for at least two months. I created new ones, in fact. He probably created new ones. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I didn't know what I know now because I hadn't gone to school yet, so... I I just knew how does anybody survive this, you know, especially friendly fire. And that was some of the thing, that was my why to go, because, you know, when you're looking at officers who are supposed to be there to protect and, and they, you know, horrifically make a, an, an, accidental, you know, death happen. I really thought, how do you survive this? I don't know how you survive this. And, you know, and I'm sure from, um, Bob Owen's story you know what happened a lot of them ended up leaving and they transferred out and you know and it it's not that simple you don't just go all right bye you're out of narcotics you're quitting you're retiring but what happens to you I mean that's still imprinted on you very strongly and um and I was going to share a story that and I don't remember where along this time it might have been where I actually went to a therapist and I just found one in the yellow pages because I wasn't I don't think it was with Larry. I don't know. I, I've lost track of time, but I was not doing well, and I think it was the job taking its toll on me. So I found a, a therapist in the Yellow Pages, and I was like, "All right, I'm going to him." So I go, and of course, he knew nothing about police work, and all he told me was to drink orange juice. I was like, I mean, I I was stunned. I was like, "What? Drink orange juice?" When left that office, never went back, of course.
4: So that leave a bad taste in your mouth? Huge bad taste.
0: And um, I said, you know what? We need therapists that know the job. We need to have therapists that probably have had, you know, done the job. Because, and I, I am all about, you know, I love the therapists that have such great passion to help first responders. But I'm always looking for anyone. I've actually talked to my clients, you know, from PD, go back to school, get your master's, I'll supervise you, I'll teach you everything I know, because I think it's that important to have people that know
4: that are educated in our culture.
0: Yes, definitely. And even the nuances of the culture, because there's stuff most people wouldn't know unless you walked in those shoes. Because you know, cops don't talk about it. But you know what they feel, you know exactly how they feel. And it's okay even to not talk about it but to make sure that you understand and it's okay and it's going to be okay.
3: I mean, you're, you're talking about the guy that tells you to drink orange juice and then you leave there and you're like, well, it's already hard enough for a police officer to go seek help. And then here I am going to somebody that's telling me to drink orange juice. You know, what the hell have I gained out of this? And then Mm -hmm. most people that may have just driven them away, period. And then that puts you down a spiral as you know, and you know, our suicides are already up high enough and people just can't cope with anything, but that's that also shows the leaps and bounds that people like you have uh, have 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 succeeded at over the years. Is that you know it, it's still that stigma is still there for the culture, people, but now people are more willing to go seek help. But the fortunate thing is, like with the ATO, we have our selective counselors. You know, they're all individuals that have been vetted, and they're individuals such as yourself that that uh, know the first responder community, and. Um, what a what a relief when you sit down and talk to somebody that that knows something about what possibly you've done, especially speaking to you. I mean, I've been to you, and it's very comforting knowing that hey, uh, I'm speaking to a police officer, not only a police officer, but a police officer that's been through many critical incidents, married to an individual who's been through critical incidents, has, has exposed yourselves, the ultimate vulnerability in police work with the high risk operations, and it's just, uh, I mean, my that that just leaps and bounds it just hats off to you for taking the the strides to do that because it's i can't even tell you i mean it's just we're just so far ahead of where we were where you were then i mean i wasn't even there but yeah i'm just so grateful for that
0: well thank you thank you for that and um you know we didn't have ato when steve and i were on the department and we had psych services but then we're always there was that you know hint of being afraid i mean doc I knew Dr. Al. I actually interned with him and I love Dr. Al. But you were still afraid to go because what if they think you're crazy or what if they think you can't carry a gun or you shouldn't even be on the street? And so there's always that hint. Now, I some of the stuff people say in my office, I'm like, you're going to it's fine. Don't worry, because, you know, they hesitate. But a lot of people that come see me don't know that I was a cop. I mean, sometimes I share it. Sometimes I don't. I, I try to at least let them know somewhere in there. If they're feeling uncomfortable, then I'll let them know. Um, but, you know, it's not something I advertise. It's not something I don't, it's not about me, as I say, in the room. But I, I, I do notice a lot of people seem to relax, you know, because then they, they know they can say whatever they need to say.
2: What well, Dottie, that, that's one of the big reasons. I wanted to have you and Steve on, just have a duo and then also the job you're doing now other yeah you're right there's a lot of officers that uh, and first responders that go to you police and fire that they don't know that what you've done before what you've been through uh critical incidents stacked on top of each other both of y'all and both (laughs) of y'all are having lives are intertwined and having to fight through that there's one incident i want you to talk about when you were in narcotics and it led to a hit being put out on your life can you can you talk about that incident and how that affected y'all
0: Oh, sure. So, um, you know, I was working for a task force. I I was doing a lot of kilo deals and um, this one in particular is probably my biggest deal that I did in narcotics. You know, anyone who knows me knows I'm soft-spoken. I'm, you know, I don't probably look like I was a cop or am a cop. And I was always surprised how people trusted me, you know, when I go undercover. And, and it was real easy for me, or maybe it was just the trust, because, you know, a lot of people get really paranoid when they're trying to do a deal. But I had an informant, and she introduced me to this guy. I'll never forget his name, because I used to carry his mugshot around my, in my visor in my car during the time he got out of prison until he went back to prison. So um, huge deal, ATF, DEA, I'm the undercover on it. Um, and it was a meth cook. It was a meth cook, ex-motorcycle gang member who had killed a hell's angel in California. A lot of the stuff I learned later <laughs> after. But um, he, wa- he trusted me so much, and it, it, it led to probably my biggest case. He had just cooked. He, he was dealing guns, um, and he wanted to show me how to cook. Of course, my sergeant was like, Oh, no, you're not you're not going to his lab, because you never know if these things were going to blow up. But I think it's because he trusted me so much. And he had no idea. And by the time this thing went down, the only thing I asked them, I said, don't let him see me after when when the arrest goes down. I was really adamant about that. And so you know, everybody's well, all the federal agencies are there. They're so excited about the the bus, the deal, all the stuff they found. Like what? Oh, like all the guns, all the meth that was cooked. It was all about to be shipped out. And I said, just don't let him see me. And, of course, they're like, oh, it's fine. You know, just come on down here. So I go down there. Of course, I'm in my raid gear. And he's still in the back seat of a car, handcuffed. And we looked, I saw him, he saw me, and it was like eye to eye. I knew he knew. Of course, my name is all over his arrest warrants, all over the, you know, the legal stuff. So I was like, oh, great. You know, this is not a good thing. Because he was dangerous. He was a dangerous guy. And um, he went to prison for five years. Federal. Federal prison. So I have five years. I'm like, okay, I'm relaxed. He gets out, and I, you know, again, I tend to forget a lot of information. I stay focused on what's in front of me, and I don't know if Steve told me or my sergeant told me, he goes, hey, the guy got out of jail, and he's looking for you. Um, I went, oh, my gosh, five years later, he's still looking for me? He goes, oh, he's basically sat in prison waiting to get out to get me. So I was scared. That was the first time I was scared because, you know, as officers, we have our cars and our homes and everything is, you know, with your address. You got the right car because your license comes, you know, um, or, or actually all the information. Like if you run a credit history check and that's what he was going to do. I mean, this is all through an informant. And he was in a halfway house. He was going to run my credit history, pay some girl $500 at a bank, run my credit, find my car, get me. And he already told the informant how he was going to do it. He basically was going to blow me up with like regular things you can get at a store. And the only thing he needed was blasting caps, which, and I don't, Steve probably has more of the detail because I just kind of I do shut it out. <laughs> I was like, and all I knew, because by then I had Matt, uh, my oldest, and he was three when all this was happening. And I was so paranoid I had his picture in my car. I was looking over my shoulder constantly. I was doing dry, dry what do you call those dry heat runs, runs? heat, heat runs. runs to go home from work, and um, and you know I always t- share this story because I was so paranoid that I was at a grocery store, and a can of biscuits popped when I walked by it, and I mean I hit the deck. I she, was so. She shot it
1: three times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was gonna say it. <laughs> but I was that jacked up constantly I couldn't sleep I was always looking out the window and um, and then Steve has the second half of that story to where you know I was just trying to live <laughs> that's all I want. were you in SWAT yeah. then?
1: Uh, uh, no still in narcotics, narcotics. still in narcotics okay. David Clark he was worked intelligence sharp guy super sharp guy he calls me and goes hey Donnie tell you about this and I go no she did not so again, it was, it's like us insulating the other one from all this stuff, and and so he tells lays all this out for me, and I'm like, oh my god, and I, and, and and I'm steaming. I mean, I'm steaming on this. And he
2: goes, "Who are you steaming at?" Just out of curiosity. I mean, oh, I'm, just I'm, the situation. Just the whole situation. Yeah, the whole situation. To be honest with you, I'm a little <laughs> yeah. bit. I'm a little bit
1: caught short with with Daddy because she didn't tell me this. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, so this is I important. just
0: yeah. learned. I just found out. Yeah,
1: yeah. But anyway. And she forgot to tell me that they actually lived together in a motel for like seven weeks. That was part of the undercover assignment. I wouldn't worry. Well, she came home late all the time. Please say that. I, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. kidding. No, that,
2: you're, that you're going back to your vice thing. That's <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I relapse a lot.
1: But anyway, David tells me the story. And I mean, I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm like, why do not know this? Like, I knew that she had made the bust and, and it was a great bust. One of the bigger ones in narcotics at the time. And... And so he starts laying this down to me, and I'm angry. And, of course, my mouth runs like it always does when I get angry. And I go, either you do something about it or I will. And Because he told me where the half house, halfway house was and all this stuff. And, and he goes, first thing he says, don't ever say that again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And he goes, we'll take care of it. We've got information. And so they end up, with, through an informant, catch him with blasting caps in his halfway house. And yeah. violates oh. his violates his parole. And they sent him off. But basically, he was going to build the same type of bomb with with fuel oil and fertilizer that blew up the the, the courthouse in Oklahoma City. Yeah, yeah, that that's what he's going to do. So um, definitely had the technology. He was smart. He made you know did meth cooks with ether, so he knew how to blow stuff up and, and knew his. And, and they said too that he's extremely smart. He's a smart guy. So, um, but mm-hmm. yeah, they did good. And then David called me later on, a couple of days later, and go, he's back in the house. So we're like, good good so but yeah it's it, it's that helpless feeling too yeah uh, so obviously I did a lot of walks through the house all all hours of the night you know being hyper vigilant stuff like this but you know when when the worst part is when your your wife and your newborn kid well actually it was a couple three years old you know when they leave the house you're like oh god you know you wanted to tail them and all that stuff but not it was smart the way she did her business so um but yeah it, it was it was it, tough it was a
0: rough time for us yeah for sure
2: yeah is there a part to that story uh, was there somebody at the bank that was shady yeah that gave information out on uh, um, that's, that's I, where he was going to get he the. Was information. Gonna get yeah. the informa- he was going to get the
0: information he was and he even said i remember five hundred dollars to pay to get my info to kill me wow that's you know cheap but yeah that's how he was going to find And me. that's how easy it is too. that's how yeah. easy it is yeah. to find people and and yeah
1: and i don't know if they ever wrapped her up in the deal or not um I didn't yeah. care as well, long
0: as I don't McCart know if was he gone. He actually did it. I think he was telling somebody. That did actually say time? his name? No, don't say. What's his, name. his status now? We don't know. No. I don't know if he's dead or what. He could be dead by now. I don't know.
1: If he gets out there, that's one of their things is they'll let us know. So hmm.
0: it was a long time ago because yeah. Matt was three. He's thirty-one. It's a long yes. time. I'm hoping he's not around. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully.
4: That's terrifying.
0: It was scary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was probably more afraid of that than any undercover deal I ever did. I was because, you know, when you're undercover you're you're alert and you're ready for it. When I'm off duty with my baby, you know, with my son, it's like oh, man. how do just I just maintain how do that I do hypervigilance oh, twenty four hours a day? Yep. Yeah. It was Nightmare. it was a it was a hard time.
2: <laughs> how did this affect y'all's family life? And just moving forward past this and once you got to somewhat of a comfort zone, how did y'all get
1: there? I think when he went back to jail, that was a decompression time, but there was still some residual left over to where you're just like, Oh my god, how'd this happen? How could it happen? You know, and then you realize too that cops are just as vulnerable as, as anybody, yeah. you know, when they're off duty and stuff like that. So you hope that you can be you can be smart even off duty and, and vigilant off duty, but you're not. You can you cannot take that that level and live off that level the whole time. I learned that from Dot. You can only, your, your cops are still going to be vigilant off duty, but just not like they are on duty. Um, and that's what wears on you so much sometimes. So.
0: Well, it's physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausting. It is.
3: Okay. Well, what does that do to your limbic system then? Oh, it's already it's screwed up. Yeah. So.
0: It's so jacked up. It's why, you know, officers have trouble sleeping at night. They're, you know, a lot of drinking to try to bring that brain chemistry down. Um, you know, working out is hugely important, hugely important, um, which we are a workout family. Um, you know, we taught the kids to work out, especially if they, they're stressed or, you know, have the mood stuff. Um, and, you know, but I, again, we didn't have ATO. We didn't have it back then. We just dealt with it, Right. Yes. Until, did. you know, I, like I said, I did my internship with Dr. Al. and um, But I was doing a lot of research, you know, when I was going to school. And I was trying to remember when I went to school. I think I was going to school right after Bromley was shot is when I started school. Because, um, yeah. And so I was learning and reading a lot, writing all my papers. Steve was editing my papers, So he was learning a lot through all the PTSD things I was learning. Um, so that helped, you know, to have the information. Um, and and working out, I think I did boxing for five years just to help with that. Um, so I think the question was how we dealt.
4: Now, after Bromley, did you, you didn't stay in narcotics long after that, no. did you?
1: No, they basically washed our squad out. Just said, you, you need yeah. to go, we're going to, yeah. we'll, Wherever you guys want to go, you can go there, and and everybody went to different assignments.
4: And did you go to Tac?
1: I did, I and, did.
4: And so with a whole different perspective of training.
1: Yeah, but the 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 kind of a side story to that, uh, Rudy Diaz, who was a chief at the time, great guy, funny guy. I'm. We're at the coming back from the funeral. We're actually changing out of our clothes after the funeral to head back to Dallas, and we had suits on all that good stuff. And I'm in the bathroom, standing in my underwear, and Rudy comes in. And I did it's always bad when a chief knows your name. I mean, that's not a good thing in my opinion. He goes, Steve, how are you? And I go, yeah, doing okay. I'm doing better now. And he goes, he goes, and he's standing there at the urinal. So he's going to the bathroom. I'm standing there in my underwear. He's like, there's life after narcotics. And I go, sorry. And he goes, there's life after narcotics. So he goes, I worked narcotics. That was the greatest deal too. And I loved it. I love narcotics, working with great guys, doing great things, um, and found out that yeah there was a life after narcotics so it was it was good um went to try it out got um accepted to SWAT and and that was just a whole nother level that I didn't know existed yeah every every time you get transferred hopefully it's a it's a different level or different kind of of challenge this was in every aspect of it it was a challenge so
3: let me ask you a question not to go back just but just to step back real quick um, when you guys got transferred out what what was that was that the department's way of saying hey we just we fixed the problem just because of hey or did they recognize that hey this is probably too much for you guys to be a part of? I mean what was the reasoning given to you the reason why you were leaving
1: I, they the reason they gave us was basically you, you need a fresh start and I think there was probably that liability there too the, the, the bad things could happen if if or they could react badly if th- something bad happens again. Um, it's it's hard to tell with yeah. the department. And, of course, you're not going to get straight answers a lot of times But on the decisions they make. But it was one of those things where we all were ready to go anyway. Yeah. I mean, we've been burning and turning for six years doing good things, and it was uh, – that, and that was one thing about that squad is any time I would get in the most dicked-up places doing undercover things, and – and Larry and I talked about the same thing. And those guys, the rest of the squad, was always there. They were there, no matter where you were at. I could open a door, going, "Well, they're not going to be on the other side." And there they were, you know, ready to come in. So um, it was just, it was reassuring to me. But uh, after that, it was one of those things. It was definitely time. It was time.
2: Steve, you you went on to SWAT after that. Yes. How did how did that go? How did you take to going from narcotics, different dynamics, and going to something that? <laughs> There was, Dynamic. there was a lot
1: of similarities in and, and the fact that, okay, you're going to be running through doors, making a lot of decisions, screwing up a lot, but we, we, it was one of those things we didn't know how much we didn't know. And so when you're a narcotics, you think you're doing everything right because it turned out okay. And that was one thing, too, after the, after the Larry Bromley incident. I hated, the two statements I hated was, everything turned out all right, which means you were lucky. Or the other one is, this is the way we've always done it. I mm-hmm. hated those two statements. Yeah. I, I, I It was like chalk fingers on a chalkboard for me. And um, so one of the first things I asked when we got up there is, what is the, the vehicle takedown system here in, in, nar- in SWAT versus narcotics? Because in, in basically in, in narcotics, you just ran up there, just like in a felony stop, ran up there, pulled the doors open, screamed, yelled, pointed guns, shot whatever needed to be shot. Um, and then we start getting smarter on the felony stops and say, stay back at your car, position to cover, blah, blah, blah. So it, it, the, the adrenaline was very much the same. Um, the techniques changed a lot, which is good. It needed to. I mean, I, I can remember kicking doors and narcotics and my shoe getting pulled out of the door when my foot went through it. You know, and having, to, yeah, <laughs> and having to run through the rest of the apartment with one shoe on.
3: Admittingly, I've done that on an interior house. Door all the time. Not, didn't lose my boot, but my leg did go through.
1: Yeah, no, all the time, and it's <laughs> and it was because my my high tops weren't laced up properly, I guess. But I don't know. It, it's a. It was. It was a. I don't want to say it was a cultural shock, and in some ways, I was. I was very impressed, but in some ways, I was very disappointed. When, when you go over there,
3: what what year is that? In ninety one. So you you've seen the evolution. of tactics yeah, and uh, have helped evolve them. I don't know the education of the listener as far as if this reaches the tactical community. I know there's several people that listen and even narcotics now has become, their tactics have evolved and improved immensely. Um, But can you walk us through the evolution of, I guess I'm going from like, what did you guys do? I know we had two man dynamic and then we went to immediate threat. Mm -hmm. What was the beginning phases of search technique for a hazardous warrant.
1: It, it was basically. Are you talking about in SWAT? Or yes. Narcotics? Okay. No. SWAT. Because the the big difference in in narcotics versus SWAT is the priorities. The priority in SWAT or in, in narcotics was the dope. Mm-hmm. Get to the dope. The priorities in SWAT was do it safely. Get shitheads in, in custody and and lock them up, and, and safety was was a huge paramount. Situation on that. So what the way we did it was everything was paired. You and your buddy. So there was one and two. You goes go. You guys go to the right. Three and four. You guys go to the left. Four and five or five and six. You guys go up the middle. You know, and and that's basically what you did. You stayed with your partner wherever you went. Well, it didn't take long for us to realize that if one is going one way and two is going that same same way, and you're in the same room getting to that hallway or getting to that other door. There's not until number three do you actually put eyes in the corner of that room to see if there's a shithead there. Mm -hmm. So the common sense kicked in. And I think one of the biggest things that changed the way, like, like I said before, tragedy usually drives change. And that's where in SWAT, we were a little bit smarter, where you basically let common sense drive it or getting outside information. Um, We were, real big friends with LAPD guys. We'd run across them in, in Orlando doing competitions. Um, Houston guys, we knew them from doing state conferences and, and very good teams, excellent teams, good guys. And so we started bouncing ideas back and forth, cross-pollinating, I guess is the word you're looking for, and and uh, getting getting information on how to do different things and do it safely. And there were some unique ideas. And we had, we had some really smart guys and really talented guys. But it's kind of like, guys were a little bit reluctant to bring up their ideas. and Some of the greatest ideas, some of the most phenomenal ideas we would learn in operations was during the operation, somebody would go, what about this? And a perfect yeah. example was we had, I don't know if you guys were over there during the time. Misty, I think you were. The guy who was shooting at the second-story apartment window, he had three exposures front and the side and the back, shooting just rifles, shotguns, pistols. Had everything as Northwest Highway and, and uh, Plano. Had everything shut down. Had a couple cops pinned down from northeast. And we get there, do the extraction, all this good stuff. Well, the the snipers, because everybody's at risk, the snipers basically asked the commander at the time, said, do we have a green light on this? And we called it Code 100 for anybody that's listening. It's a green light, basically. Next time I see the guy, can we punch him out? And and uh it was denied. So we're sitting there and the guy would go down, and he would go out his apartment door, which was an interior stairwell, shoot down the stairwell with the shotgun, then go back inside, and you just get glimpses of him going across his window in the stairwell. And so we were like, Well, that's probably not gonna work if we push the stairwell. And so we're we were on the React team, which is kind of a hasty team put together just in case if thing goes bad right now, where the other teams are they're planning the deliberate hit. And So we're a couple breezeways down and going, okay, we got to get, we got to get close to this guy because if he's, there's an opportunity that we can strike, we need to get there now. And, and, uh, so basically it's it's basically trying to penetrate to the, the, the critical site wherever that was. And so one of the guys and quiet guy, sharp Randy Lancaster, good friend. Um, he just looks at me and goes, let's go through the walls. I'm like, what? And he goes, let's go through the walls. We'll go up this stairwell, kick this apartment door in, and go from apartment to apartment to apartment through the walls. And I'm like, look at him, and I go, dude, that is genius. He looked back at me and goes, I know. <laughs> and so we did. And we we were basically in the apartment right across the breezeway from him, so five feet, our door is five feet from his door. And we were waiting for him because they were pumping a bunch of gas in there. We are waiting for him to come out, stick his melon out there, and then we are just going to snatch him up or do whatever needed to be done depending on the circumstances. And we're sitting there looking bullet holes all through this apartment, everything that we're standing in, going, yeah, let's find something hard to stand behind. So we you know, got refrigerators that we're standing behind and all this good stuff. Well, the guy sticks his mallet out, and he is he's at the window right by the front door, target of opportunity. So we're going to take him now. Well, like idiots, we're all amped up over this. Oh, we're geniuses. We're geniuses getting here, you know, all this good stuff, and we're right on top of this guy. We forgot that they've been pump, pump, pumping a bunch of gas in there.
3: Yeah. So
1: yeah. We, don't, we don't have our masks on. We get about four steps inside this room, and he's gagging, we're gagging, <laughs> drag him out, you know, cuff him up, take him to jail type stuff. But it's funny. You keep looking at these deals, and you go, you know, this was fantastic that we did this and this and this, but something always comes up because it's never been a perfect hit ever. Nobody in this, the, the life of this job has ever had a perfect hit, even though some claim that they have. There's always something you can do better. Um, and, and that was one of the, I think one of, I don't want to say my gifts, but one of my tendencies was I always looked for things that we could do better versus things that we did great. Uh, a lot of, a lot of guys called them BJ sessions. I'm not going to say what that means, but that's basically what it turned out to be. I'm going to
2: look it up in the urban
1: dictionary. The term, yeah. See
4: those oh, tactical oh. terms just roll off. terms. Yeah. <laughs> <sir. laughs> yes.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, it it, it just – and I have – I forgot where I was going, Josh. Where was <laughs> I, I going a with all that? train of thought. Yes.
0: You were sign-trying. Yeah, I think
3: we were just hitting on the evolution. I find it interesting There you go. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, you know, you, we start with this – That's a this, great
0: story,
4: though. It, it, it sums up a no, lot of things. No, it oh, does,
3: and it talks oh, about yeah. multiple breach points, and it talks yep. – you know, ingenuity uh, while you're out there, it's just uh, – because a lot of it, that's what it is, right? I mean, we have a found, yeah. we have a foundation of tactics we use for one one situation to another, uh, but even those change, given whatever environment we encroach upon when we make entry, or yep. uh, or like on a cover pile, or yep. on a vehicle assault. Those don't always go no. accordingly. People fall never. out of vans. And never. We smash cars. And <laughs> yes, we is that do. what you're hearing? Because you know?
4: I'm hearing leadership. I'm hearing leadership decision without communication of moving you out of narcotics without an explanation. I'm hearing leadership of not having the nuts to pull the code 100 with the window of opportunity. I'm hearing some leadership issues that doesn't seem to ever be addressed.
1: Okay, and and one of the questions that you were asking, Joe, that you want a response to is leadership. Um, I, I don't think law enforcement today cultivates leaders. They don't want leaders. They want supervisors. They want people that'll that will do what the department wants them to do, and ultimately city council. So, a couple different points. John Hancock, my my favorite lieutenant. He was him and Pat Hill were my lieutenants in SWAT. Loved them both. But JD, you know who I'm talking about, Misty. He he uh, he was genius in the in the fact that he was always a big picture guy. And he, I remember him sitting there one night, and we—he was—he was phenomenal at how he would phrase things and keep things light, humorous, and stuff like that. But we were sitting there talking one night, uh, just before getting off work, and he said, "Fellas," he goes, "I'm starting to be concerned," and and we're kind of like, "Why is that, LT?" And he's like, "I think, and I'm afraid that we're starting to see a paradigm shift in in police work to where it's not, it's not." a question of whether something is legally, ethically, or morally correct, as long as it's politically correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, you had great foresight. Oh, yeah, and we just stood there with the mouths open going, please tell me this isn't happening. And, of course, then year after year, you saw it go in that direction. But um, a- another great leader that I had over there was Mona Neal. She was our captain, stud. She, We had a situation where a guy stole a 18-wheeler that was running in a parking lot. Um, the the owner of the big rig sees him driving off and goes and pops the brake lines for the trailer. And basically, what brake lines do is they hold the brakes open. So when you pull them, disconnect them, it locks down the calipers. So this guy he he could drive. We were actually running warrants block away from this, and jumped in on the chase
4: in southeast.
1: In southeast, yes, it was. And before this is all over with, the fire the the calipers have started on fire. The load of lumber that was, was on this has started on fire. The forklift's on fire. He drives through a <laughs> he drives through a kin or a playground, a school playground. And Mona's watching this on TV. Because now the helicopters are all there watching this yeah. thing. And and Mona's watching this. She calls up and and tells the, the sergeant, says, Okay, I'm authorizing a code one hundred. Ballsy. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it's great because the sergeant's like, uh, so I understand you're telling us that next opportunity, code one hundred, and she says, yes. He questions her again. Second time she goes, I want you to and, and <laughs> I want you to take care of that problem at the next opportunity. Is there anybody on the air that doesn't understand that? And everybody in that in that van just went, Oh my God, what a stud. She made a decision based on what was right versus what was politically right.
3: Yeah.
1: Um it it was a just a, a circus too. Obviously, I mean, just the the helicopter wouldn't land. Put snipers in, which they're now real proficient at. They want to take shots by themselves, so they're up there hundred feet sh- throwing shotgun rounds, buckshot, and not doing anything. Um, the The truck is fully involved now. It's it's flaming, um, and we ended up got ingenious. The to, to guys took squad cars, and he would. Every time a squad car tried to pass, he'd swoop it off the road, you know, cut it off, and they're just push it in the in the ditch. Well, one of them finally made it by, put some rounds into the into the cab. Guy didn't hit get hit with one round, and there was probably twenty, but he just knew where to go inside that truck. And uh, anyway, stopped. He decided it was time to stop, so uh, it ended well. But yeah, it was it was a it was a display of of leadership, in my opinion, great leadership. So,
2: I want to get into you know I've had. I've been telling some people you're coming on, you and Dottie are both coming on, and everybody's wanting the oh, whole The leader of the Dallas SWAT show went, oh. yeah. No. Yes.
1: No. Not at all.
2: Yeah. Well, looking at that, <laughs> the picture that A&E put out there, handsome SOB right in the front, looking chi- square jaw, stoic. chiseled. Just stoic. Yes. Right and or
0: something.
2: just like a badass no <laughs> yes they had me are. there because
1: i was the tallest and if i fell down the other guys could pick me up behind
2: yeah well hey it's still a reason but <laughs> you look damn good in that pic <laughs> how how did that how did that whole process start up with coming approaching you and, and the guys to be to be on that show and i'm sure some people were just lining up foaming at the mouth to be on that but how did that take off and how did that affect your family life
4: I wasn't going to ask about the show. I appreciate that. <laughs> he
2: one of you hates had, talking one of you about character. the show. <laughs>
0: we'll keep it of. brief.
1: <laughs> um, it, it's actually kind of a, a little lo- longer convoluted story that a lot of people don't know. There was a, uh, remember Jeff Chagrin, British guy. Jeff was a video journalist from England, um, sharp man. He had done a lot of work in South Africa, working with South Africa Special Forces, had gone to Afghanistan, has a great video of himself getting the shit shot out of him in the back of a cab in, in Afghanistan. Um, sharp man. But he went to he went to LA and he was wanting to do a basically the same style of show that he had done in South Africa. He wanted to do it in in the United States. And so LA was kind of the 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 team, the hot team of the moment. But he really didn't want to do them. He's like, you know, I need some somebody fresh, because LA's been all over everything. And we knew, like I told you before, we knew LA guys from competing down in, in Orlando at the SWAT Roundup every year. And and so Mike one of the guys there on the team leader of um, one of the squads there, he goes, Hey, look up the look up Claggett and, and the guys there from Dallas are good dudes, you know, they they do good work. Um and and so he contacted me. And Jeff was originally going to he wanted to spear a show called Texas SWAT, and and uh, which was going to be a compilation of a bunch of teams in in Texas. He was going to use San Antonio, Houston, um, Plano, and I think um, Austin. So um, he had he came and wanted to do a demo tape first. So he came and worked with us for a week, and it was one of those just got off of weeks where we were busier than heck. And we were knocking down some good hits, good barricades, good. I think we actually had one HR gig and a bunch of warrants. And so he took that video, went to New York and went to all these different, uh, companies, uh, court TV was one of them. A and E, uh, discovery channel. I think he even went to the big, big, uh, the agencies too. And, so court TV said, "Yeah, we'll we'll definitely we'll de- definitely do this." Uh, Texas SWAT. Well, A and E basically approached Dallas and said, we're, "We we want to do one with just Dallas, not with all these other agencies." So basically, they were competing, and A and E Dallas was like, "Oh yeah, make it about us." So Jeff kind of got cut out of that, which was a shame because the guy he could did he ever go any hits with you, Misty? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Oh man, we would. It didn't matter where we got in or how we got in or what door doors we went in. He was always, I remember on one deal, he went through a window. We went, had to go through a window because it was heavily fortified, so we pulled bars off the window, broke the window out, everybody went in, and then we they were breaching back door two at the time, and he was right behind us. Never got in the way, which was, that was usually a, a characteristic of the, the, the guys that came from A&E to film. They were always in the way, but uh, just a talented guy and I felt bad because he lost lost that ability to, to pull Dallas into the, his Texas SWAT thing, but I still hear from him. He called last week, in fact, so it was nice to talk to him and catch up, but yeah, he's living out in LA now.
2: But that's how it got started. Dottie, how did that affect the family dynamic with, with that show going on?
0: Well, it, um, I don't know. A lot of people don't remember Combat Missions. It was a show that Steve was on. Okay. Prior to that, Did we I know. Talk about I I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know this. I, you just yes, googling you just, right now. A lot now. of people don't brought it out of the woodworks. <laughs> I, you know, it's part of our history. Combat Bad missions. Name, <laughs> oh, Combat <sure>. missions. Well, <laughs> he left for thirty days. You were in the Mojave Desert. I had we had a brand new baby. That was Anna Claire, right?
1: And we were moving.
0: And we were moving. Oh, wow. So he goes off for thirty days to do this show, and I'm like, sure, go ahead. And I'm that's who I am. I'm like, whatever you want to do go ahead. But I go, okay, so that means I have a new baby, I'm working and I'm moving us all. So but you know, it it was fun to watch that. And then when uh, Dallas SWAT came, and I'm I'm in narcotics, I am camera shy, I don't want that camera in my face. So um, I was constantly dodging. And you know, there's episodes with our kids in it, which was fun. It was all fun to watch. Um, But people still talk about it. It's like in reruns, apparently still. Um, are I mean, people in Rockwall. Hey, aren't you, you know, so and so? He right here
3: is the cast role himself. In
0: combat sure. missions, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, but no, a lot of people he did don't. Very well, he did. He did well in well. fact, they were the win- they won their. Um, yeah,
1: it was it group. was actually just a it was a show basically, police and military different teams. Competing against each other, doing military stuff and police stuff, it was it was fun. I I really enjoyed the people that were in it. There were some studs in there, and it was funny because we would do operations that were modeled after real time ops uh, that had been happened in narcotics or in in, uh, in the military, and guys that were there on the show were actually on those ops. And would kind of explain the ins and outs mm-hmm. and the things that okay this this is what, how it was portrayed this is what really happened and nothing ever happens as glamorous as you th- think it should or think it did when when the light of day hits it you're like yeah you know that's that was not nearly that sexy so
0: but but, I guess uh, we were used to because that came before and then Dallas Watt. yeah but um, you know it was really fun but we were never allowed to talk about it Steve would not let us talk about it. <laughs>
2: Well, I'm sorry I brought it up, but yeah, no, you're <laughs> not. we're no, talking we're about it. <laughs> Actually, I hit pause. We weren't recording. Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm bullshitting. But.
4: You took a lot of shit though on the department.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I did. And it, it's the the sad thing was, is, and I had conversations with different guys about it because of the the combat missions. I knew that however they want to portray you is how they're going to portray you. Oh, yeah. So you could say everything right and do everything right. If they if they want to, you know, cast some some shadow on you, they can. Just how they edit it, and there were some guys that that were knuckleheads that came off golden in in the combat missions. And there was guys that were you mean down great, the SWAT no or, oh, combat, combat missions. Okay. There was guys that were were good dudes that they they made them look like arrogant turds. So um, I just I kind of was telling everybody guys. You, be be pristine in everything you say and do because they can make you. They can take whatever you do and make it look good or bad if they if they so intend. Mm-hmm. And there were some guys they per- portrayed wrongly. Uh, they
2: they did. Um, so, having two people on with very long careers that had a lot of incidents and and so accomplished in so many ways. Dottie, were you still you're still in narco- wrapping up narcotics while this show was going on, or had you already left?
0: oh no i was in narcotics okay because we would all sit around and watch it
2: okay up there um i want to take back i'm yet shifting gears again going back to Dottie. there's another incident that that kind of really you know stacked on top of the uh of bromley and really made you look at taking a a different path in your life and career mm-hmm. can can you talk about that the uh in, in David shooting?
0: Sure, so, because um, I had made a list of all the stuff that was happening in narcotics. And so, you know, Larry Cadena was shot in 88 and killed. Um, and then Bromley was shot in 91. Um, we also had another officer um, shot in narcotics. Harold Hammond was shot in 92. And then David Rodriguez was shot in 94, January 9th, 94. And Dave and I worked in the same squad, and I, I was not there. It was another Sunday, weird. And it, it's January again. You know, a lot of stuff happens December and January, so it was another Sunday, and I couldn't get a babysitter because I was supposed to go in that day. And um, I, I'm thinking, well, yeah, I had our we had our second child in '94. Mm-hmm but I don't know if I was pregnant or hiding it. I, I did that a lot. <laughs> um, so um, I, didn't, I couldn't find a babysitter, so I couldn't go. And then, of course, the next thing I hear is that David had been shot, and I got to the hospital. Um, and so I don't have the details on that shooting. I know a lot of other people have the details. I just remember going to the hospital. I don't think at that time we knew how bad the injury was, but – I spent a lot of time with David after, you know, he had to go to rehab and all that because, um, of course, he was paralyzed. And, and um, I know Mike Miller was in our squad. He spent a lot of time with David. I spent a lot of time trying to uh, with my kids and, um, and, and home life. But, you know, when, when an officer goes through that sort of injury, you worry about them. You really worry. And I think David had 25 years on. And he was like, you know, an incredible um, training officer at Northwest. And then at the end of his career, he decides to go to narcotics. And then he has this life-changing um, injury and, you know, having to learn to live differently. And, of course, you know, there was a part of me, I was so worried. I was always worried. And... um you know, he went through a lot of changes, and I think ATO, getting involved with ATO, was really a good move for him. Um, and, of course, back then, you know, I was on the roundtable with Popkin and uh, about the counseling program, and uh, we had said, it has to be confidential. We have to figure out how to make it confidential. And I don't know how we came up with it, but I said, you know, on the round table, we had to come up with a code and, you know, we weren't going to give officers names. And, you know, um, and so we we figured out we would just bill it under a code and that a lot of people don't even know that <laughs> they think, you know, and even uh, people call up here at, at uh, DPA or ATO and want to access the program. And, and I know they always say, oh, don't don't call us call call the list. We don't even want to have your name because we were so protective of you know making sure that officers felt comfortable coming um, and so I think that was kind of the inception and and it you know I I was the original therapist because shortly after that um, I think I was I had already gone to school I, I was licensed um, I left the the department and then I went straight and became their first. I think they had others, but I, I was, uh, so I've been doing 18, This shows my age, 18 years now. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's all, I go, wow, I'm old, but, um, you know, and I love it. I still love it to this day. And I'm one of those that I could have a full schedule and if an officer calls me, I'm going to figure out how to get them on my schedule because I still believe that if they're calling, you need to get them in. I need to get them in. Um, and you know, I'm just so happy that they're calling and trying to get help.
2: Cause calling is the big, is one of the hardest decisions to make.
0: Yes. And, you know, sometimes even getting them there and I'll try to go, what's your schedule? What's your day off? You know, when do you sleep and try to figure out a way that they can come in. And, um, I'm sure they're nervous that first day. And once they come in and, um, I feel like it's better. Um, I hope I'm helping. I, I know I can't help everybody, but I hope. I, it's still my passion. I'll do it probably till I can't remember anybody's name. <laughs> I'll just do it till I can't.
3: Yeah. I hope you, I hope you realize, well, both of you, uh, but I'll start with you. Um, I hope you realize the, uh, impact you've had on people's lives. Uh, and, and I, and I, and I know this is a profession you chose and you chose it for a reason. So you're probably not going to, you obviously don't do that for a pat on the back. Right. But, um, you, uh, individually has, you you have impacted so many people's lives. You you have saved probably God knows how many lives, uh, whether that be a first responder or a family member or somebody's marriages. uh, You know, you've you've helped so many different people same same thing to you to skip over but you know the same for you i'll forget to say it later but you think of the number of lives that you've changed too steve just the the impact you've had on not only the tactical community but giving your positive affirmation to individuals to further the the goal and mindset and just not of the tactical officer just a police officer in general and just people in general i, I the, the the two of you are amazing that a that you're still married obviously you guys have a great dynamic together so i don't know why you guys keep saying that but uh, which, which
1: one's more amazing josh
0: yes tell <laughs> <me>. <laughs> that's a competitive, now, competitive. If I, if I I'm had, oh yeah, yeah let me uh <laughs> let me break that down for you yeah what did i do wrong <laughs>
3: nah, but uh no seriously and uh yeah i just uh, just can't say enough about it i mean i i came over right when you retired yep. Yep. my first day was the day of your retirement party yep. and went to that and uh and and it's and it still lives on right i mean the things that you've done have, have lived on right
0: did you go to that the retirement yeah, park? Mm-hmm. Did yeah, you remember the pictures that were oh, shown
3: no. uh i vaguely remember <laughs> i was brand new so i kind of hid in the corner Uh-oh. and i didn't want to bother anybody actually the only <laughs> yes. person that talked to me he's was he's still mad at me <laughs> so, he's still mad at
0: me for those pictures
3: but uh but anyway that's just okay. I I <laughs> to there was that one in particular
1: where i'm on the floor wrestling with our dog big dog huge dog and i'm wearing red shorts that look pink Pink that's, shorts. That's all Very I got. Very nice. Yeah, it no.
2: was Valentine's Day. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't need chaps? In,
1: in, no, there was uh, no
4: chaps. Oh. oh damn Wow. Wow. There was, a, I a, was told otherwise.
3: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: my dog didn't fit into <laughs> yes. chaps.
3: So, I can think so. of one operator that uh,
2: oh. watched the picture probably. Oh, I know wow. who you're talking about. Yes. yes. We just talked about and him he, earlier, right? maybe he, oh, yeah, he was there. Yes. <laughs> at the party. Yes, he was. So, Dottie Lee's and finds her new why and there was a lot of incidents that led to that that new why in her life and i can attest to what Dottie's done steve you wrapping up your swat career yes okay how hard was it to walk away from that job and and that's everybody that thinks of you they they see mr swat And and, and everybody that you've helped, and we're sitting here listening to it and and the legacy that you left behind. How hard was that for you to walk away and and, and and give that up?
1: Let's be clear. The legacy or the, the, I guess, legendary was a term I've heard Misty use, uh, the legend that just basically means it, there's been so much time that's passed that everybody forgets the bad stuff I did, the stupid stuff I did, the mistakes I had.
3: Oh no, they're they're quick to point that. Oh, no, good, <laughs> yes. No, so, yeah. Or it Trust means me. that the bad
2: or the <laughs> the good outweighed the negative. Uh,
1: yeah, no, I I'm definitely I'm the first one to admit I had more than my share of mistakes, but it was hard to leave. It really was, and and f- because of people like Misty and, and the other people that I worked with, you know, Robert Cockrell and I worked together for a lot of years and did Orlando together and did a lot of good stuff. Um, good, good people. Um, Scott McDonald, senior, best leader in law enforcement ever. And and I was I was fortunate in the field that I chose. In fact, that was part of the reason I left. Is because I was offered a job to go work for Triple Canopy as an instructor, SWAT instructor. So um, I'd been doing it for a while while I was still working um, for a couple different people, and if it was a good fit for me. Uh, you know that old saying when you can you do, when you can't, you teach. So I'd reach that can't point um, to where it was just too physically challenging for me because I was breaking down and and because of being stupid. but it's it was a good transition for me. and the nice thing about it is I was able to kind of still be in the field or be in the in that environment with teams I started out doing a lot of open classes where anybody could come to it from from all over And then I started working with teams and some. Some good teams I did a lot of work in Chicago, Chicago's team, um, did a lot of classes for them and, and in that area, but basically all over the country. And the, the two things I found is that a leadership is really hard to find in, in departments because they're driven by different, different things. And the other thing is no matter how bad we think it ha- we have it here in Dallas, we're doing well. We do well in Dallas compared to a lot of different places. Everybody's got their issues, but we have a lot less than what most people think. And I think this new chief that everybody raves about, uh, Chief Garcia, is a godsend. He came at the right time, in my opinion. Um, whereas I know a lot of agencies that picked up people that has not have not worked out well. So I'll leave it at that. But it was a good transition for me, and, and it was kind of fun because a couple of different times I was able to strap on gear and go do a hit, or you know, and, and it was fun. Again, so you find out those reflexes are perishable.
4: So you're still continuing your why I,
1: I'm not now. Cause I, I retired from that this, okay. this past year, I stopped doing that. I was doing just, I was working my last two years. I was just working with teams that I'd worked with throughout the year. So it cut my schedule and, in, and about a third of what I was doing before. Cause there was, there was times when I was on the, the road for five weeks at, at a time, just different classes around the country. And it was hard. I, I was away from Dottie and the kids, um, living in hotel rooms and not nice hotel rooms because I was trying to make as much money as we could and all that kind of stuff. And I was only there at night. So, but phenomenal people around the country, you meet them and you just find out everybody's got their challenges. Um, but we, uh, I hope that I was able to make a difference with a lot of these places. It, the, the, the fun part about doing that was getting that 2am phone call. Cause I tell people all the time, I'd say, Hey, I want to hear from you knuckleheads. I don't care what time of the day or night it is. Call me if something happens. And I would get guys call me up saying, hey, this is where we're at right now. What do you suggest? Um, but I love those 2 a.m. phone calls where they go, dude, you should have been there. Hmm. And where they had some hit and it was, I mean, it was just, it, it was self-affirming for me. And, and basically it was nothing that I was doing. I was basically taking things that we had done not well and said, learn from this. Smart teams will learn from this. Whereas, teams that struggle learn from their own mistakes or sometimes don't learn from their mistakes because the way they, they do their after actions, um, nothing goes perfectly. Find the things that didn't go perfectly and make them better. Uh, that's, that was kind of the, my whole motto and all that stuff. But that was, yeah, that was a good transition for me. And, and now I'm done with that.
4: Both of you guys are absolute warriors and you have a successful marriage that's lasted so long. Um, give, give some advice back on some young officers if they're listening right now
0: after all that you guys have been through together. Take it to me. Uh, let me, well, you can after me. Okay, thank you. you see who the boss oh, yeah. is? <laughs> no, what, it, that's, it's, that's, it's a
1: boss thing, not a lady thing.
0: Well, you know, because when I'm doing marriage counseling, you know, with younger officers coming in, and, um, you know, if, if you absolutely can fight, fight for it right because it's not easy there are many times i was like okay i think i'm done but you're not done and you know you just try to fight through it if you can um you know we have three kids i think that are uh, benefiting you know from um us being together but um you know when it gets hard try to make it work sometimes you can't when you know the other person isn't willing to to fight but we it, I think in, in ways, I feel like we were lucky, too. Like, there were many things that we were just lucky. Um, and it, it worked out, or we were able to kind of take care of ourselves in certain things that we were struggling with. And then we just come back around, you know. Uh, you know, and because we're competitive, and I'm – I'm pretty strong-willed, and I think most of y'all in the room know how strong-willed Steve is, because he's, like, really strong-willed, and he's very opinionated and has very strong opinions, and, um, but I have always been able to, you know, stand my ground when I needed to, and then I gave, I gave in when it wasn't important enough. I'm like, okay, do whatever. You know, every other month in SWAT for 15 years, he was, he was gone. He was working evenings. I was working days. And that probably helped prolong our marriage, I think. Yeah. Okay. so
1: She was genius at making me think or letting me think I was in charge.
0: <laughs> little did I
1: know I wasn't. And, and I tell people this all the time. She is truly the best person I know. I have never met anybody better than her. Aww. Oh, stop it. <laughs> but, and that's and made it easy. I, I, I contribute very little to this relationship because she's, she just, it's, it's not an effort. I'll put it that way. But. I think for me, you, you have to have the job, and you, everybody becomes the job and this kind of stuff. But you also have to have the hobby, whether it's working out or shooting. Or we used to go to a lot of movies. We went to a ton of movies, and all you did was just sit there and escape. You'd escape for a while, and, and that was that was good. That was that was cleansing for us to well, a certain
0: point. We have a hobby. We refurbish homes. We're in our fifth oh, cool. home that I we didn't know that. No, oh it's Steve not cool. is a jack <laughs> of no. all trades. He does plumbing. No, I mean, he can do everything. So no. he's he's very busy right now.
1: <laughs> yes, I've got a bathroom that's all torn up. Yeah, but no, and, and that was kind of our thing too. We we found something we could do together, and that was that was a essential. Um, we used to play video games against each other, and that became too competitive, so we had to stop that.
0: Because <laughs> I used to win, and then you got you couldn't stand to lose. So he would practice hours day and night before I got home. Day and night. I'm like, how'd you get so good? He's like, I practiced. Foosball. Foosball, same, yeah. same thing. I was yeah. really good. And then he out he practiced for hours. <laughs> he couldn't yeah. stand it. It's all
2: good. Well, I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Steve, you had in your bio, you like to build things. And in looking at your family and your marriage, I think you did a great job of building and maintaining. And you're still building with that torn up bathroom. So <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for your service and all that you've given this city and Dottie, what you're continuing to do to the officers, including myself.
4: You guys are both the inspiration, the continuation and, and you look amazing. Yeah,
2: they're like city of Dallas. Right. Yeah. Ken, <laughs> yeah. yeah and Barbie. Uh-huh. Barbie. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Thank God there's no
0: cameras Y'all are being here. way too nice to us. And I want to thank, I mean, all three of you have been so kind to us and the nice things you've said. I really, really appreciate it. I'm usually in my office by myself. I might see people, you know, and I get to live in that world, what they share with me, but really it's just us and home projects.
1: My my little side note to this is, and and this is the the advantage I've had with traveling around as much as I have over the years. This is unique, what you guys do here. This is phenomenally unique And, and what you bring to people. Um, it's unheard of, it's unheard of. In fact, a couple of people that I've known up in, in the Chicagoland area whose wives were therapists, they wanted to model this and, and try and bring it to their agencies. And, and uh, I, I don't know if they can pull it off because it takes so much, you guys are in here on your own time. So it takes so much dedication to do good things. And that's the sad thing about it is, is most, most cops, they're done with the job, I don't wanna hear about it anymore. So you guys do great things for people. And that there's no greater gift that I don't think you guys can provide people is the mental health and just being there and supporting for for things
3: like that. So phenomenal. Yeah, again, just going to reiterate what I said. Thank you both. You've left your footprint and you continue to leave footprints, both of you. Again, you've helped God knows how many people in many different aspects of their life, whether it be professional or personal. So thank you for your service when you were here and thank you for your continued service. Thanks, kids. Thank you. Appreciate you. It's a wrap.
5: Hey, it's a wrap. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, mister. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder. Together we'll run up from the bottom. Yeah, a Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun is. upon you hey mrs hey mister i'll see this all the way through no matter how far for the gold and the blue i'll never give up